Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my worksmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It is certainly a pleasure to speak to you twice today. You're going to get a whole lot of face time here. Um, no, it, it certainly is an honor to do the Sunday school uh, teaching. Uh, I guess my dad was busy working with all the other people and getting tools in various places, and so he asked that I take it uh, today. I wanted to highlight a few things that are coming up, although this isn't an official announcement. It's pretty official. Uh, in the future, at some undisclosed point uh, on the timeline of human history, there will be a class at our church, whether uh, part Sunday school or extracurricular, on biblical finances. But before we actually get into that class, I felt that this topic was so important that, uh, along with uh, some prodding from uh, my dad, that we would talk about this. And I, I feel like I have the right to talk about this uh, just as much as any other preacher or other pastor, especially because I'm like Paul. I don't take a dime from Grace Christian Fellowship for the service that I do, but I want to present to you a well-defined argument for why tithing is a biblical duty for the Christian. A biblical duty for the Christian, not a biblical duty for the non-Christian. We do not tell people who are not Christians who come to our uh, services that they have to give, uh, and they can give, that's fine for them. But in this passage, Paul is writing not to the world, he's writing to Christians. Likewise, he is not writing as if the law does not matter. He argues from the law as we're going to examine. And Paul gives a defense for why it is the right of a pastor or the right of a minister, of an apostle, of an evangelist, of a shepherd to get their earning from the gospel. And because that is their right, therefore every right has a responsibility, the, the corollary responsibility that is on the other side of the coin of the right of the pastor is the duty of the Christian to tithe. And so many in our day 
have bought into the lie of antinomianism that says that Christians don't have to obey anything, uh, that this has become a major ac- epidemic in the funding of the church. If you do the math, if you do the math, a church of 50 people, each person in that church, 50 people who are working, so let's say 50 families, 50 families should be able to employ about five pastors. If you do the math, there's a, a 10% dividend from each person, or sorry, a 10% uh, tie, the 10% uh, yield from each person, and that uh, portion of their salary, that portion of the their income, their blessing, uh, goes to fund a particular thing in the church. Now, uh, I think most churches would probably also use that money for giving to the poor, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the things that Paul presents in this uh, argument, we won't have time to talk about. But I wanted to cover at least four aspects that I see in this passage and how they apply to the Christian today. I want to look briefly at something that is not in this uh, passage per se, but rather speaks to the, the authority. Why do pastors, why do elders have the authority to talk about these matters? And, and, and how do we know that it's not just them wanting money? We're going to look at the Levitical economics. We're going to go to the law for a little bit. Um, and, and mainly, we're going to go there for a history lesson. And we're going to, I'm going to talk about economics. If you want to get schooled on economics more, you could talk to my mom after service today. She would be willing to help you understand the guns and butter uh, realm. And uh, we're going to look at how did, the, how did the Levitical priests live? How did they go throughout their life? How did they fund it? We're going to look at Paul's special role. Uh, sometimes when you examine your scriptures, if you have a copy of them, they put in uh, the editors put in these little headings or subheadings, and they say various things like, you know, before, the, before a parable, it'll say the parable of this and that. Well, the heading that I see in the English Standard Version for this passage is terrible because it says Paul's, uh, Paul's renunciation or Paul's revoking of the right. Paul's laying down his rights. Paul's asserting his rights. He's making an argument for why he has these rights, and then he says he's not using them. He's not warring against his rights. He's just simply saying, here's why I'm not using them. And so, uh, if anything, the heading might say Paul defends his rights, because the whole, epi- uh, the whole epistle that he's writing is a defense of his apostolic calling and why he has the authority to speak into the Corinthian church. And then finally, we're going to look at the nature of the tithe. I want to I dispel some common notions that the tithe is this oppressive thing, that it's a regressive uh, return to the law and that, that those who tithe or those who teach tithing are actually uh, trying to subject people to slavery. If anything, uh, that is the furthest thing from the truth. And in fact, Paul argues that this is fully applicable to the Christian church as we heard in the reading and as we're going to look at and examine in detail. So the first thing, um, elders have the authority to speak into things in the life of the church. And many times when when elders are uh, ruling a church, there will be something in the culture that is wrong. Right now in our culture, we have many things that are wrong. Rampant divorce among Christians is a great error. 
And one of the downsides that we see, culturally speaking, is many Christian young people are putting off marriage until their 30s and 40s, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's not to say that every Christian has to get married, but for those who are called to marriage, putting it off until you're 30 as, an, as a way to hopefully uh, overcome the odds of statistical divorce, uh, just the statistical norm, that, that's not the solution. The solution is to find a good partner and to be a good, faithful Christian disciple. So overreacting to error can cause a great problem. Our, cult, our, our culture, our country, in the early years of, of the 20th century, uh, reacted to many errors of financial uh, devastation across the nation. And the way that we answered them were great government programs, which have done nothing but subject people to various taxes that have now taken over our lives. And reacting to error often leads to an overreaction. That is, the pendulum should stop swinging, but there's nobody at the center to, to, to catch it. It just swings to the other side, and you've got the exact same type of problem with two different uh, major symptoms. So in the church today, I think that many in the evangelical world have responded to the egregious excesses of the prosperity gospel, and they have gone over to a neglect of the rightful place of a believer's giving to the Lord. Uh, we become hesitant to take offerings. We become uh, really, you know, sheepish or or shrimpish. Any other animal with an sh sound would do that. That's how we approach everything, and and so pastors pull back, not wanting to be associated with the horrible. Christ-hating offenses that are committed by the prosperity gospel proponents. And so we, we just kind of become silent about that. That's not the right way to respond to the error of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel preachers who ask you to give to their ministries, they do not have a check or a balance. This is that check and balance. So this is why elders, overseers have the right to speak about these things. Likewise, when Paul is telling Timothy uh, some commandments, some instructions, Paul tells Timothy to do a certain number of things. He says that he should command and teach the things concerning the gospel of Christ. And that comes at the end of, of well, near the end of 1 Timothy, after he has laid out tons of practical implications. That is, the gospel is not just something you believe. The gospel begins to touch and, and eventually will influence every dimension of your life, every area. Spiritual uh, life is not the only thing that Christianity speaks to. It speaks to your money. It speaks to your family. It speaks to your education. It speaks to your job. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm commanding you to teach these things. So Timothy's faithful obedience to these things, Paul says that he will save both himself and his hearers. There is something about Timothy's righteous commandments that will actually save people. Now, whether that saving is a justification by faith alone, I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about saving them from a life of futility and for the eventual erosion of the community of God, such that the ministry of the church basically evaporates. You run out of gas and you're pushing the car by the side of the road. Let me tell you, that is a terrible thing to have happen. If, if the church should dwindle and diminish to that point, it would be a disaster. The ministry would be ended. Paul is a unique exception in this way. He does not tell Timothy to start making tents. 
Paul never gives Timothy a command to go off and try to find his work outside of the gospel. Paul only says to Timothy to command and teach the things that he has presented in that epistle. Likewise, understanding that these epistles would be rotated among the early Christians, 1 Corinthians applies to us just as much as Timothy. Jesus Christ is king over all of your money. I hope you know that. He is king over all of your stuff, all of your people, all your family. He's king over your job. He's king over your car. And everything that you have, everything that you own, everything that you touch is uh, has a claim. There is a, do, uh, a title deed on that thing or that person. And the name under the title deed is belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only redeemed you, he also made the whole world and all of the world exists for his glory both coming through him and going to him, everything is Jesus Christ's. So uh, do not hold the things in your hand with a tight grip. Now, there's a wonderful quote from, from Star Wars when Grand Moff Tarkin is trying to exercise control over the galaxy. And if you haven't seen it, I'm quoting it for you. Princess Leia says to him, the tighter you close your grip, the more star systems slip through your fingers. What, what she's saying, it's a great scene. It's, it's like the beginning of what, the story of what's at play in the movie. What she's saying to this evil overlord dude is that the tighter you try to hold on to this stuff, the, triter, the tighter that you try to exercise wrong authority over the stuff that you think is yours, more of it begins to slip through your fingers. It is the same way with money. The tighter you hold on to it, the more it seems to disappear. Christ has indeed spoken, and it is ours, it is our responsibility to learn what he says about every area of life. You should, as a Christian disciple, be on a war to get everything righteously put under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If there are areas of your life which you are holding out on the Lord, you are called to lay those down at the cross. You are called to subject those to the lordship of Jesus. So it is right for elders to speak about money because it's right for Jesus to lay claim on your money because he bought you with a price. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You do not have the right to wield authority over the things that you are a steward of however you choose. It's, it's, it's not a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of sin versus righteousness. So understanding that heavy responsibility that we each have before God, it's our duty to search the scriptures to find out what Jesus Christ says concerning everything. And so we're going to do that today with money. So Paul's argument today, he makes reference to the Levites, and he makes reference not only to the tithe, but he also makes reference to the sacrificial offering. When, when we take our offering today and every day that we've done it here at the church, you'll hear we're going to continue our worship of the Lord by taking our tithes and offerings. Paul has both of these in view in this chapter, and the, the way that we know he has both of them in view is he makes references to those two ways of giving money. Paul actually makes allusions, he makes literary references to other portions of Scripture, and we're going to look at those portions of Scripture now. So when, when Paul's making these allusions, he's talking about the Levitical priesthood, and if you don't know much about the Old Covenant Scriptures, Levi is a guy who was born to Jacob, and this guy had children, and that became the tribe of Levi. 
When Israel is going into the land after God had just brought her out of Egypt, he rips her out of Egypt, takes her through the wilderness, and then sends her into the land. And as God is bringing uh, the tribes into the land, he chooses Levi for a particular task. Deuteronomy 10, 8 through 9, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Now, to this day does not mean to this day. He, he specifically means to the day that the person who's writing Deuteronomy is writing. There is no more Levitical priesthood on the earth. Uh, that priesthood has passed away, and in fact, it's been reformed and enculturated so that all of those who are Christians are in the kingdom of priests. So likewise, uh, therefore, verse 9, therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance. God is setting the Levites over to a particular job. They cannot be uh, they cannot be carpenters. They cannot be computer repairmen. They are only ministers before the Lord. That is their role. That's their vocation. And because God wishes to set this in concrete, he does not give them any land at all. Each tribe, if, if you're unaware, each tribe received portions of lands, and those lands belonged to those, those tribes forever. And in the year of Jubilee, God sets every tribe back to its original boundaries. No matter what they sell, uh, the, those properties go back. Levi can never acquire land in Israel. So the question is, if the Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him, which this is referring to, there's some, there's some sort of uh, inheritance that God has promised to Levi, if, uh, which I think is the blessing that Jacob says, but we don't have time to go there. If, if they have no ability to get land, ask yourself, how can they ever make any money? That's the great question. The Levites are given no inheritance in the land, therefore they cannot plant crops, nor can they plant vineyards or orchards. Olives grow on trees. They, they can't have fig orchards. They can't have olive orchards. How are they going to produce bread, wine, or oil? Likewise, they can't open storefronts. There's no, they have no land. They have nothing to sell. How do the Levites eat? If you've ever had to manage your own checkbook, you're saying to yourself, if you're a Levite, this is a scary proposition. I've got no resources at my disposal. Am I going to sell myself as a servant for a number of years to, to eat? No, not at all. The question to how the Levites eat is that God declares that the Levites are paid to be are are paid with regard to the service of both the administration and the the sacrifices and offerings that accord with the temple, uh, which is in the future the tabernacle at the time. So God gives the Levites a specific way of making money, a specific way of living, of sustaining their life. Numbers 18, verses 21 and 24, there are verses here that are in the middle, which we are skipping. I'm not skipping them because they don't fit with the argument. I'm skipping them because we don't have much time. For Numbers 18, 21, 24, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, the service in the tent of meeting. God explicitly says this. This is not literary inference. This is concrete in the text, very plain. To the Levites, I've given every tithe. Verse 24, for the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I've given to the Levites for inheritance. God is reiterating himself. Therefore, I have said to them, 
said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. God says, here's why they have no inheritance is because they are going to make money on the tithe. That is how they are sustained. Now, this isn't an enterprise by which the Levites become rich. If anything, the textual record from the rest of the Old Covenant says that Levi has a lot of problems because over and over again, Israel is judged for not bringing the tithe into the storehouse. If you were a Levite there, you were sharing in the sufferings of Christ before the incarnation took place. Levites over and over again are shortchanged in the Old Covenant record. And that is uh, plainly visible, especially in the minor prophets who who chastise Israel, um, an, a number of them come to mind, but, but basically both the, both the judgments that God brings and the economic judgment that Israel wars on the Levites, over and over again, we hear that the wine has run out, the grain has run out, there is no oil, there's nothing to worship with. So the Levites are in charge of the worship of God's house, the worship in God's house. And what is the, what is the result if Israel should diminish, if she should turn from God and not turn in the tithes? Using those tithes, it's, when you don't pay the tithe, it doesn't disappear. It goes to the things that you're spending it on. And so what should happen if Levi diminishes. If, if Levi dwindles and diminishes because Israel does not pay the tithe, then Israel cannot worship God because she has no one to minister. And if you remember the old covenant, every time someone who's not in Levi, except for David, uh, comes before the Lord and does any form of worship or offering, what happens? They get judged. Crispy critter. <laughs> the earth opens up. Fire breaks out from the temple, consumes the people, or it consumes the people in the temple. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit is fire, in a, in a sense, that is, that the Holy Spirit is signified as fire, but I don't want that kind of fire. I want spiritual fire. I want symbolic fire. I don't want actual fire to break out against me or you, because, uh, you know, we don't have the health insurance, and we, we really like you. We don't want God to judge people, and, and if the Levites diminish, if the Levites dwindle, then Israel has no way to approach God except inventing something of her own, multiplying her sin, first not tithing and then inventing her own priesthood. That would be terrible. So Paul is referencing this. He, he's referencing this plainly. That's what he says in verse 8 and 9, and then uh, likewise he, he reiterates another idea in 13 and 14. If the people of God withhold the offerings from the Lord, the Levites dwindle. If the Levites should diminish, there's no atonement to be had. Now, there are two other tithes in the Old Covenant, but since, uh, since we are young in the Lord, I'm not going to have time to cover them. Uh, those you can search out on your own. There's one that's given every three years, and then there's one at the end of the year. Both of those tithes, uh, I don't think that you have to give 20 or 30%. We can talk about that later. Those tithes, I believe, have been folded into one, or if they apply, they certainly aren't within our ability to discuss them today, but they're there. And if you think that's oppressive, just look next time you get a paycheck, look at your paycheck and see how much more oppressive the situation has become. A, a 20 or 30% donation to the Lord would be much preferable. I would gladly pay that tomorrow. I would probably gladly double that tomorrow if I could get rid of the other contributions that I can't get rid of at the moment. 
So, Paul has a special role in the church's history. Paul is the greatest apostle in terms of the number of places that he goes that remain. Uh, some of the churches that Paul plants exist at least in, in some, uh, as a building, if not a community. To this day, there are, there are cities and there are ch- churches that Paul established, and they have thrived. And the regions in which uh, Paul is operating in, uh, many of them, for historical reasons, have fallen into Islamic territory, Islamic uh, strongholds. But like, but nevertheless, Paul has a great ministry. It is unparalleled in the New Testament. All the other apostles do well, but their their exploits, their the record of their uh, amazing zeal, is not necessarily codified in the scriptural text. Paul is, however, and Paul has a very unique role. Paul, unlike the other apostles, does not take any money. Now, Paul in this chapter, like uh, earlier I said that I didn't like the chapter heading, Paul is not saying that he is not taking money because he doesn't have a right to. There would be no discussion, there would be no point in that. Uh, If Paul is, is not taking money because he has no right to, why bring it up? Paul asserts his rights, and then he says, I'm not going to use my right. He flexes his right, but then he doesn't exercise it. So Paul has a specific role, and this specific role is for one goal, is to get as many churches founded before a particular time uh, in Israel's history where the the scorn of the nations comes upon her. Paul's goal is to set up as many uh, faith communities as he can within his lifetime. He's been given a special uh, role in that regard. So Paul does not use his authority, he doesn't exercise his rights, but rather he chooses to add no other uh, hindrance to the gospel. Now, when I say that, I am not saying that, that that giving of tithes is a legitimate hindrance to the gospel. I'm saying that Paul does not take any money so that even the false accusation of him doing it for sordid gain or, or, or uh, evil gain would be possible. It is, it is not that taking money opens you up to the accusation that you are hindering the gospel. He's doing it so that there can't even be a false accusation, which is uh, exactly how Christ walked in, in the gospels. So Paul says that it's his right. He doesn't renounce his right. And in fact, if anything could be understood, Paul is defending his right and, and probably setting up the Corinthian elders with some actual backbone, some actual financial foundation rather than uh, their, own, their own jobs. This is my defense, verse uh, 3, 1 Corinthians 9. This is my defense to those who would examine me. 1 Corinthians is Paul asserting his authority to speak to the Corinthian church. There are some who've come into Corinth and, and have said, this Paul guy, we don't like him, we don't need him. And Paul is saying, no, you, you are my letter. That's what he says here. Verse 4, do we, have the, do we not have the right to eat or, and drink? This is exactly what Paul's doing. He's saying, do we not have the right to eat or drink? He's referencing how the Levites earn their living. The Levites do not have claim to anything in Israel except the cities of the Levites and the sacrificial offerings and the tithes. The Levites do not have claim to lands. They don't have claim to uh, sheep. But in a sense, they do. They have a claim to the tithe, which is a representative yield from the land. 
Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? It so happens to be the case that we're going to read Mark uh, 1 today, in which it's mentioned Simon Peter's mother-in-law's home, implying that he has a wife to have a mother-in-law. Those go hand in hand. Uh, Many believers wish to marry without gaining a mother-in-law. It doesn't happen. Verse 6. We just happen to coincidentally be, be seeing the at least two places where Simon's uh, wife is mentioned. <clears throat> Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Paul's saying all the other apostles are doing this. Why are we not doing this? Now, he's not complaining. He's saying to the Corinthians, you have no right to revoke Uh, our authority. You have no ability to even do that. And even if you did have an ability to do it, you have no reason to because we're not a burden. Paul is saying, I'm not burdening you. And even if I was, I have a right to be, but you have no right to to throw off the uh, bonds of of his apostolic call. So, So Paul here is not saying that he is giving up his right. He's saying that he has a right to it and he's not using it. Surely, if Paul lived to the age where he could not go along and pre- preach, I would hope that whatever church he landed at would financially support him for the, his retirement. If any apostle deserved that, Paul deserved that. If you, if you have any doubt about that, go read what happens to Paul. I had a problem with my neck last night for like uh, an hour or two. Paul got beat repeatedly. Paul got bit by a snake. He went in the deep after shipwrecks. That's horrible. Like, I complain when I stub my toe. Paul goes through the sufferings that Christ went through without regard to crucifixion, although there's differing traditions how Paul dies. But the point is that Paul has every right. He is working for the gospel. He is presenting the gospel to various people. He's warring with the Judaizers. He's warring with the Gnostics. Paul is warring with the legalists. He has every right to be supported by the church. So Paul is defending his authority. He's not laying it down. If you have an English Standard verse uh, version, you have my permission to take a marker and go through that heading. Don't touch any of the verses, but just take, take out that heading. Paul is asserting his rights. There are those Christians who say that the Old Testament is not relevant to New Testament believers or New Covenant believers unless it is reiterated. There are those who say that. There are other Christians who say that the Old Covenant still has bearing, it still has an authoritative claim on the life of believers, uh, even if it's not reiterated. I tend to fall into that camp. However, even if you fall into the first camp where you say the Old Covenant, the, the law, is not applicable to a believer unless it's reiterated, I want to show you that it is explicitly reiterated right here. This could not be further from the truth. This is, is basically antinomianism. And, and the reason I say it's basically antinomianism is antinomianism, which says that a Christian does not have to do anything, that a believer does not have to obey, uh, is one step removed from the idea that a believer does not have to obey the law of God as it's written in the Old Covenant. The law of God, which still applies to us today, is the moral law, And we know for certain that all the cultural provisions and the sacrifices have been fulfilled. When I say that the law of Moses still has claim to you, I'm not telling you to go home and get rid of your garments that have any mixture of cloth in them. That is not what we are saying. Christ in his body tore down the dividing wall. The cultural provisions, the dietary customary laws of Israel have been done away with. You have never come to me and let me examine your leprosy. And I don't want to see your leprosy. Keep it at home. 
Christ has fulfilled the law. Nevertheless, we do not believe that we should go around and murder. We don't believe that we should go around and envy and be adulterous and be jealous and, and covetous. And those things which still apply certainly are reiterated. Even if you take the, the, the position that they have to be reiterated, those things are reiterated. So the law, which Paul in Romans 7 says is holy, righteous, and good. I don't know about you, but I need an, a, a little more of all of those three things in my life. The law, which is holy, righteous, and good, Paul reiterates in this passage, and he says it applies to the, to the church. God's law still has bearing for Christians. It is simply moved from tablets of stone to hearts of flesh. That's the new covenant promise in Ezekiel. That's what the covenant is all about, is that the law would go from tablets of stone to hearts of flesh. Now, again, I'm not telling you to stay away from shrimp. I don't like shrimp. You may like shrimp. You're allowed to eat it. There's nothing that commands Christians to follow the customary laws, and we're not about to start sacrificing animals. That's not what I am saying when I'm saying that the law still has implication and authority to speak to the Christian. It simply means that we need to use judgment, understanding from the text, from the scripture itself, being taught from the Lord, what applies and what does not. So we're not going around and trying to take land and we're not exercising people out of Canaan. That's not what this is about. What it's about is following the law of God, which we know uh, from the New Testament as well as from the Old Testament. Renunciation of the law in the Old Testament presents a number of significant textual problems as well as life problems that you can't get around. So nevertheless, no matter what side of that debate you take, which I, I would advocate that the law still has implications, even if it doesn't, Paul reiterates it here and says it still applies. And we're going to see exactly how Paul says that. Paul appeals at this place to the law to enforce his argument, not to make it weaker. If Paul thought the law did not apply, he would say, although this is mentioned in the law, it still applies. No, he says, am I speaking on my own authority? Or does not the law also speak with me? Paul's saying there are two witnesses here. And again, a principle from the law. 1 Corinthians 9, 8, do I say these things on, my, on human authority? Does not the law say the same? He's appealing to the law to bolster his argument. Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul's referencing another part of the law, and he, that's not immediately applicable. It's applicable in a symbolic fashion. That verse is talking about being kind to your animals. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Surely not, is the answer to that question. Paul is saying, I'm using symbolic language. Here's my, here's my tip of the hat that I'm using symbolic language. God is not worried in this passage about oxen but rather he is worried about the ministers of God. Verse 10, does he not certainly speak for our sake? That line right there removes any argument that this is not applicable to Christian Paul's uh, Christians. Paul says specifically that God is speaking for the new believers, the new covenant believers' sake. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. It, Paul over and over again says to the various churches that he writes to that they are his letter in the Lord. They are his living epistle, which demonstrates his apostolic authority and effectiveness. The, the churches that Paul helps to found and bolster are his reward in the Lord. Paul will be at the end of 
his life, uh, which isn't happened yet at the at this point in the text. At the end of Paul's life, Paul will be judged righteous because of faith in Jesus Christ, and he will be rewarded according to his deeds, which is the historic Christian faith. Paul will be rewarded because of his great work that he works with, and that work is fueled by the grace of Christ. But nevertheless, the motivation is there. Paul says, does he who sow not have the right to hope in what he sows? Therefore, it's right that he should return. If anything, this is capitalism, which if you're a friend of capitalism, you may enjoy that fact. Paul's saying that the ministers who sow have a right to hope that it yields something. It's right for Christian uh, ministers to hope that their ministry succeeds, because if it doesn't, they can't make any money. They'll, they'll eventually starve or have to stop ministering, get another job in some fashion. But he says that they should hope. Their motivation should be that their ministry would be effective. And that is not just a spiritual fruit. That is also a real physical fruit. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, Paul's, Paul's arguing in this symbolism. If we've sown spiritual things in you, we are... Uh, is it too much if we reap material things from you? He's saying that it, it necessarily includes a physical return. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, as I've said earlier, the obstacle is not that tithing is required. The obstacle would be at this point in history that the Judaizers would come in and say that these are false apostles or the various religious fashions or anti-apostles would come in and say, these guys are doing it for sordid gain. They're doing it for evil gain. They're not preaching Christ uh, for true motives. Paul wars against that. And, and if you have any question about that, uh, read the book of Philippians. Paul wars against those who preach Christ and, and the Philippian church gives extravagantly. Paul rewards and commends the Philippian church, but everything that the Philippian church gave in the context that he's talking about, it didn't go to Paul. So Paul is not just saying, here's, here's why you need to give uh, so that he can get money. He's advocating that giving is still in effect because the other ministers need it. Paul is operating like a team player here. He is not trying to get money for himself, although he has every right to do. Uh, to do so. So Paul argues that the law is still in effect in this regard. He argues that it was written for our sake. He's writing to a New Testament church, New Testament believers. Paul says that it's explicitly written for Christians that they would know how to live. Without understanding God's law concerning how finances should work, you will live ignorant of God's will. So Paul continues drawing on the nature of the sacrifices. Remember I said there's tithes and there's offerings. Paul references both. We've spent a lot of time talking about the tithes, but here we're also going to talk about the offerings. If you don't remember, in the Old Covenant, there are at least five offerings. I think you could interpret it to also include seven offerings. There's the peace offering, the sin offering, the ascension offering, and a, a few others. But all of those that take, there's a free will offering, all of those offerings are ways that God has set up his faith community of Israel to live and exist and to operate in righteousness that they would hopefully, by understanding the symbolism of the things which they were doing, point forward to Christ, and that it would be a true spiritual blessing for Israel. 
If a man sins, he has to bring an offering. If he wishes, if he has devotion to the Lord, he brings an offering. If there's been uh, some sort of guilt or he's incurred or his hand was involved in something that went evil, he has to bring an offering. Offerings were the, the currency of Israel's forgiveness, not, in, real, not in, in terms of the actual forgiveness, which only comes in faith, but in terms of the provisional forgiveness that God commands to be set up to attend to or to go along with the real forgiveness that they receive from God. Now, there are times in the Old Covenant where God forgives someone and it's not explicitly mentioned that they went and did a particular sacrifice. That's not in our scope of, of discussion today. That's uh, too big. But I want to I show that Paul also highlights this dimension, that, that not only the tithes, but also the offerings are given to the priests. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? If you remember, they put the, they put the meat in the pot and then they stick the fork in and whatever comes out on the fork is theirs, Right. I don't know about you, I would invent a special fork, like one with lots of hands. Uh, forgive me, Lord. Uh, they would get their food from the temple. This is, the, this is the command. The Levites are supposed to stick the fork in and pull out the food, and, and they're supposed to go for the fatty p- uh, portions. It's Atkins diet. Um, oh, the, I'm almost out of time, so I shouldn't even be talking about this, but last night when I was doing my research, I saw this ridiculous thing. Please never do this. There was some guy who had a website called the Levitical Diet, and it was just, it was horrible. Don't do it. Please don't invent things like that. They're, they're cheesy. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. QED, I rest my case, Your Honor. This is Paul saying that this is the goal of Christian missions, Christian ministers, that they would get their living from the gospel by preaching the gospel. God's established, this is the the economy of the local church, to function on the tithes and offerings of the people. If the tithes and offerings of the people diminish, the church will shut its doors. That is plainly what takes place. The tithe is God's means of reaching the lost through the proclamation of the gospel in the church and missions of, the, of evangelical mercy to the world. That is, the church is supposed to be the organizing function in which minist- uh, ministries are done. Now, does that exclude parachurch uh, ministries? I don't think so. Parachurch ministries are good. We need those. Uh, the church in today's culture is so divided that without parachurch ministries, the church would effectively do almost nothing. So I think those are good. Uh, but here, I think Paul is talking about the funding of people who are preaching the gospel. And it's right to consider those things if you want on your own, if you want to go and look through the text. If you want, you can find these places in Deuteronomy and Numbers, and you can uh, look at them. But, but here, Paul is specifically talking about those who are ministers in the gospel. So I want to briefly talk about the nature of the tithe, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, I will make this short. The tithe is not extortion money. Extortion money is, let's say you're living in Sicily and you got these guys, they come around and they're all, their first name is Don and they come around and they, you know, rough you up and you pay them so that you can keep the rest of your money. And if you don't pay them, they come in and take all their money. Watch Godfathers one through three to understand what I'm talking about. It's not extortion money. You do not pay God the tithe so that you can then use the the rest of the money however you want. 
That's not what the tithe is about. You are not paying off God and then taking the 90 and spending it on frivolous stuff, whatever you want to include in that category of frivolous. Everything in your life belongs to God. Indeed, you have been ransomed by Christ. You are not your own. It's not extortion money. This is a gift that is to the Lord. It's commanded by God, and yet God loves a cheerful giver. Don't neglect the giver because you're not cheerful, and don't neglect the cheerful and just be a giver. It's wrong on both sides of the coin to, to neglect the other half. Tithing is a federal representation. What I mean by that is the 10% that you give to the Lord represents the 100%. It represents you acknowledging before the Lord that the Lord created this wealth. The Lord gave you the ability to make this wealth. Some people fail to see how they, they work a boring and mundane life, and they have no ability to, in their minds to see how that job that they have to work affects the kingdom of God in the least. And yes, you may work a job in which it is very hard to see, but the scripture tells us at least two things. First, that everything that you do is to be done as unto the Lord, so your job is sanctified if you do it in a sanctifying way. If you do your job delivering pizzas or working at a fast food restaurant or being an accountant or owning a business, whatever your job is, if you do it unto the Lord, that job is a spiritual worship to the Lord because the, the scriptures teach us to do everything as unto the Lord. But if you can't see how that ties in, although that is a, a very spiritual understanding, the physical real understanding, the, the, the thing that you can touch at the end of the day is that the tithe is the way that the majority of Christian vocations are used by God to influence the kingdom expanding. Your job contributes to the kingdom expanding through the giving of tithes and offerings because it's your, that's how you get your money. This is not necessarily the only way that you are supposed to give to the kingdom, but it is certainly a way that you give to the kingdom. The tithe is not simply an invention of Moses. Many people think, oh, tithing, Moses, old covenant doesn't apply to me. The tithe is not an invention of Moses. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, of whom Christ is in the same order of his priesthood, and that tithe was righteous. Finally, we're going to end with this idea that paying the tithe is paying tribute to King Jesus. This is not tribute that you pay to a king who has come in and been, been a tyrant. This is not tribute that you give to a king who has destroyed your armies and thrown out your people and, and usurped your land. This is a tribute that you give to a king who you love. This is a tribute that you give to someone who you adore. This is not to be understood as God is laying this oppressive tax on me. Rather, God is inviting me to participate in the funding of the kingdom. So that's uh, all we have time for today. I, I deeply encourage you, if you are not a, a radical giver, if you do not pay the tithe now, consider these things that I'm saying today. Read this chapter again, 1 Corinthians 9, and, and wrestle with what is Paul saying? Is what he seems to be saying clear? Is it true? And if so, what do I need to do to get my life in order with that? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would bring us into blessing, that you would allow us, Lord, to understand your will for our lives. And we do ask, God, that you would give us freedom from any deception that your word does not have claim on our life. Deliver us, Lord, from any remaining uh, taint of 
of antinomianism and that we would wish to do your law from the heart, being fueled by your spirit, not in our own strength. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.